chapter 9. There should be a Bible around your seat somewhere, uh, or if you want to use your phone or whatever device you have, and follow along with us. But as you're turning there into Matthew chapter 9, I want to invite you tonight to the night of worship. It's going to be a special time. Uh, We're going to be led in worship by our own Seth and Nerva, and and they're going to lead us in a time of prayer and and reflection and scripture. It's just going to be a fun night to just be in God's presence. You know, sometimes on Sunday mornings, you got to rush to the next thing, and if you're serving on a Sunday morning, you get here early, you leave late, you're tired, there's, there's a lot happening, but the night of worship is a time where during the 21 days of prayer and fasting, we just slow down and worship God together. So I would love for you to join us in that. It's a really fun time from 6 to about 7.15 is when we'll end, and we would, we would love to have you tonight. Also, if you're a guest today, on the second Sunday of every month, which is today, we have a 15-minute meeting right after church called Starting Point. And Starting Point is an opportunity for you to get to know us, meet some of our staff, ask questions if you've uh, never got to ask questions here at Strong Tower. And we would love to just meet you. There's snacks, there's drinks. It'll happen right next to us in the gym if you haven't had a chance to go over there yet. But in the gym, we'll have Starting Point right after church. It's about 15 minutes. We'd love to have you. All right, so Matthew chapter 9. If you there, say amen. We're going to read verses 35 to 38. Matthew 9, 35 to 38. Hear the reading of God's word. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. And when he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the labors are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. I want to tag our text this morning, all in to serve. All in to serve. Let's pray before we jump in. Father, we uh, come to you this morning knowing that you are the God who is great the God who is majestic, you are high, you are lifted up, you are like no other, you are holy, holy, holy. But we also know that you're the God who, like no other, comes down off your throne to live among us, to walk with us, to inhabit your people. And so God, we pray as we look at your word this morning that you would come to us, that you would move in our direction and you would speak to us. That as we listen, you, you would make it clear what you are saying through the scriptures. That we might know you and love you and serve you with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. We pray for your glory and our good. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You may be seated. A few years ago, uh, there were these pictures that were going around the internet and Facebook and Instagram and different outlets, and, and there were these pictures that had, had the same caption, different types of pictures, but the same caption. They all had at the bottom of the picture, not my job. Did you see some of those going around? There, there were these pictures, you can still find them, like you know, blogs and pick them up, and, and different people might post them every once in a while, but pictures of just different random things, all kinds of people were posting them, and and it would say on the picture, it would have this, this picture of something strange. And I remember seeing one, and, and it had this, this possum that, that clearly had been run over in the middle of the street. And, and the poor thing was just laid out in the middle of the street. But what was more odd than, than a picture of a dead possum 
was that it had yellow stripes going down the middle of its body, from its body all the way down the street, and, and it just kept going. And, and if you look at it for a second, it looks odd, then you realize those are the yellow stripes of the road. That someone who, who painted the stripes came along and, and decided when they got to the dead animal in the middle of the road, it wasn't their job to move it out of the way before they painted the road down the middle. And it just said at the bottom, not my job. And then I saw another one that had, uh, it, it was a cone, like a tall orange cone, and it was in someone's yard that was manicured beautifully. You know, the bushes are trimmed, the, the grass is, is cut perfectly, it's nice and luscious and green. You could tell everything was well maintained and cared for, and, and next to the cone, in the grass, was also this little high point of the grass. And it was, you know, maybe a foot or two high, and, and the grass was kind of dead, and it looked kind of shaggy. And it was clear, if you, if you realized what was going on, someone had moved the cone that was over top of that grass. And someone had been cutting that grass for weeks, maybe months, who knows how long. And, and they decided every time they cut the grass, they weren't going to move the cone. They just left the cone there. And the grass continued to grow inside the cone. And they would go around the cone and trim everything and make it perfectly manicured, but not move the cone. And it just had a little hashtag, not my job. I mean, have you ever done that before? I mean, you, you kind of laugh, but, but we, we've done that, or maybe you've felt that before. You walk into the kitchen, and, and you realize the dishes are piling up. You, you walk in, and, and, and the kitchen's a mess after dinner, and, and you walk in, and you just kind of look at it. You analyze the situation, and then you do one of these, right? You, you turn away and pretend like you never saw it. You never did that. I mean, some of you, you go to work and, and you get this email from somebody, that your, your co-worker, and, and you realize that they're about to do something, that they're going to make a major mistake, and you catch it, but you realize they don't catch it, and you realize you, you have an opportunity to say something, but ah, we'll just kind of let I move on to the next thing, and not my job. I mean, we've done that kind of stuff before, right? You've done something where you realize this, this is an opportunity to step in and, and help out and, and meet a need. And, and you kind of, when you see the need, you turn away and you look maybe the other, other direction, go a different way. Now, of course, not everything is your job, right? If everything were your job, you would be God. You, you would be infinite in your abilities. Not, not everything that you come across is yours to do, but... Don't get it wrong. You do have a job. Some people take it from not my job to I have no job. I have no purpose. I have nothing to do. And, and so I'm just going to sit back and receive. And sometimes when we come to this discipleship, this following of Jesus that we've been talking about the last few weeks, there's this reality where we take it from not my job to I have no job. But the reality is that the commitment to love Jesus is also a commitment to labor with Jesus. There's this reality that Jesus has this picture, this, this vision for discipleship, this vision for your life with him that includes you serving, you having a job, right? When Jesus talks about himself and his own job, he, he says this in Mark chapter 10, he says, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. 
Right? When, when Jesus paints the picture of his life, what he's come to do, he's saying, I, as the Son of God in human flesh, did not come so that people would kiss my feet, but that I would come and wash the feet of others. I came to serve. In other words, I came with a job. And, and if you're going to follow me, the disciple will be like his teacher, his master. Paul picks that up later in in the uh, letters to, to Corinth and in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, he picks up this imagery of the body. He says to be part of the church is like being part of the human body. That every part of the body has a job. Every part of the body has a purpose, right? The eye has a purpose. The ear has a purpose. The leg has a purpose. I don't know what the appendix is for, but God put it there and so it has a purpose. I don't know, but every part of the body has a purpose. And in, so in the same way, Paul is saying, just like Jesus, that if you're going to follow Jesus and you're going to be a part of this body of Jesus, you also have a job. Again, not everything is your job, but something is your job. You have some purpose, right? To be part of the body is to be a part of the work that it is to have life. That's what it means. To be a part of the church is to be a part of the work. And so as we continue our series this morning called All In, we're, we're beginning uh, this year looking at this theme of All In because it's our theme for the year. In 2020, uh, the leadership of our church has decided we're going to focus in on deepening our discipleship, deepening what it means to follow Jesus. In other words, it's, it's more than just I'm, I'm saying I, I want to be saved, I want to go to heaven, or I want to attend a meeting on Sunday mornings, or I like the way the music makes me feel, or whatever, whatever it is for you. It's saying, I want to go deeper in this relationship with God. I want to be all in. And so last week, if you were here, we looked at what it means to be all in with prayer. That if you're going to have a deeper relationship with God, it has to begin with prayer. It has to begin with pursuing Him. Personally, in your own life, for your own self. And so this week, I want to move to the next topic. As we go through this series, we're going to look at kind of some high points, some key things that we can commit to together. And this week, I want to look at serving. That again, if you're going to be a part of a healthy uh, discipleship, serving is key in that. You, you might have seen around here at Strong Tower, if you've been here for a while, or, or you've taken the new members class, we talk about our philosophy of discipleship, and, and we talk about three things. It's grow, connect, serve. And we, we say that to be a healthy follower of Jesus, to, to have balance in your life, to have wholeness in your life, you, you need all three. You have to be growing in grace, you have to be connected in community, and you have to serve on mission. And so I want to look at that third one this morning. What does it mean to serve on mission? How, how do we know what God is calling us to do personally? And so if you're taking notes this morning, I want to begin where Jesus begins, which is looking. So if you're taking notes, the first point is the look. The look. Let's begin in verse 35. And, and it says this, verse 35. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. But when he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Now, if you can picture for a minute, Jesus is walking from town to town, village to village, city to city. And, and he is he's doing his ministry. He's, 
He's healing people, he's preaching, he's teaching, and, and it's fascinating to me that Jesus has this holistic ministry, right? He, he doesn't have a, a ministry only of preaching, he doesn't have a ministry only of healing, he doesn't have a ministry only of teaching, but he says, I'm going to minister to the whole person, I'm going to preach good news, I'm going to teach truth, and I'm going to heal suffering. And he goes from city to city healing and teaching and proclaiming and, and people are starting to gather around him. And, and the Bible says that as these people are gathering around Jesus, as he's meeting needs and, and teaching the gospel and, and doing all these things, he kind of pauses for a moment and he steps back from the crowd and he looks. And we're not told how, how big the crowd was. I mean, it could have been hundreds. It could have been thousands. We know at one point there were 5,000 people following Jesus. And he looks at the crowd. What does he see? Matthew says he, he sees a crowd that's harassed and helpless. He says they're like sheep without a shepherd. In other words, he, he sees people who are hurting. He sees people who are lost. He sees people who are confused. He sees people who are taken advantage of, who are abused. He sees people who, who don't know their own identity. He sees people who, who wander and, and look for where they can go next. He, he sees people who are in desperate need. Some of them, it was from their sin. Some of them, it was from someone else's sin. But most of them, it was from both. God looked out upon this crowd and he sees them. They had been wandering in this broken world alone without the good shepherd's guidance. Many of them were invisible to others. They were marginalized. They were forgotten. They were dismissed. But Jesus saw them. In fact, looking was the pattern of Jesus' life. Look at what, what, what the, the overview of Jesus' life shows. That you could see dozens, probably hundreds of times, you see this pattern of Jesus' Looking and looking and looking with the widow of Nain, it says when the Lord saw her, he felt compassion for her, Luke 7. With the feeding of the 5,000, when Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them, Matthew 14. The rich ruler, it says Jesus looked at him and he loved him. Mark chapter 10. With Lazarus, who was dead, it says Jesus saw her, his sister, and he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. In John 11. And then when Jesus, in the last days of his life, came to Jerusalem, it says, as he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it. In Luke 19. Jesus' life was full of looking. Looking at people. Looking at the, the people created in the image of God that he loved, that he longed for, and, and he felt for them. Every time Jesus looked, there was something that he saw, he, he felt deep within his gut. The word that, that Matthew uses for the compassion that he felt is this, this guttural feeling. It's, it's that sickness to your stomach. That Jesus saw these people harassed and helpless. And it moved him. See, that's how love always works. You see, you feel, and you're moved to act. And so serving begins with looking. Serving begins with looking. Maybe you're familiar with uh, Mother Teresa, one of the most famous people in the 20th century. Mother Teresa made headlines from the slums of India. Right? She spent her life helping the people who everyone else forgot about. Everyone else put to the side and said, these people don't matter. We'll just ignore them. And 
And so she went to, to love the poor, the, the, the sick, the lepers, the, the dying. She, she came to these people and, and she would literally walk the streets. Like her and her team, they, they would spend every day walking the slums of, of India and Calcutta. And, and they would walk and they would see these people. The streets were just lined with people who were in need. It, they had nowhere to go. The, the hospitals were overflowing. They didn't have the funding. They didn't have the personnel. No one could get the help they needed. And so literally people would just come to the streets and lie out and hope someone could help them. But no one came. And then Mother Teresa and her team would walk the streets. They would help the people they could help. They'd carry some of the people back and, and give them a bath and let them die in dignity because they had no, no way to help them. They did this for years. And then they realized as they were helping some of the lepers that the best way to help them was to give them a place to stay. And so they wanted to build this place for them. And, and as they pre presented this idea to build this place, they came up against serious opposition. People didn't want to build a place for the lepers. So what is she going to do? She decided to take them to the slums. She took them on a walk down the street to shake hands with these people who were losing their limbs. She took them down the street to look in the eye of the people who didn't have enough food to fill their belly. She took them down the street to watch mothers who had to bury their children. And this is what she says in, in, in her biography. They quote her as saying this, once, once they saw, they understood. When, once they saw, they, they understood what was happening. It was looking. It was looking that led them to feel something, to be moved to love. But it began with looking. So I want to ask you this morning as we move along, uh, where are you looking? Right? We, we have to be looking at who is around us and what is around us. And we can, we can start with, with just the physical needs. I mean, you can start with just in our community that there's single moms who are trying to figure out, am I going to pay the light bill or am I going to pay the rent bill? I'm trying to figure out, well, what am I going to do? I'm working two jobs already. I don't have what I need. How am I going to meet the needs of our family? You can look around us and see that there's young men who are growing up right here in this community that don't see their lives as having any future because they've been told and raised in a society that says you're not worth anything. Or if you open up your eyes, you can see that, that there's, there's elderly folks who are, who are positioned in isolation and, and forgotten by families and neighbors and friends who, who say that there's just too much need. I, I can't handle this anymore. And, and no one has time for them. They never thought the last years of their life would be lived alone. There's homeless children sleeping in cars in Polk County. Sleeping in motels, trying to get their homework done and get to school on time. Those are just the physical needs. This is our, our community. But then, then you open your eyes and you see the spiritual reality. Listen to some of these staggering stats in Polk County. There's 700,000 people in Polk County. Did you know that? And it's one of the top 10 fastest growing metro areas in the nation right now. Growing at over 20,000 people per year. That's enough people to fill the RP Funding Center, Joker Marchant Stadium, and Bryant Stadium combined. Every year coming to Polk County. And out of those 700,000 people, studies show that about 80%, maybe more, do not go to church. 
You would think this, this is the Bible Belt. You would think this is, this is Lakeland. This is the South. And there's spiritual emptiness. 500,000 people out of 700,000. Maybe more. 500,000 people without the love of Jesus. 500,000 people without the forgiveness of sins. 500,000 people without the peace of God. I mean, just let that sit on you for a second. I mean, we have to, as the church, we have to own the lostness of our city, both the physical needs, the spiritual needs. We have to own it, right? We can't be the church who simply sees it and then walks away. We have to be the church that sees it and it moves us, that there's this gut-wrenching feeling that it has to change, that there has to be something that's different. There has to be people who hear the gospel. There has to be people who see the gospel. There has to be something that happens in us. But listen, it'll never It'll never move you if you're not around it. You can't see what you're not next to. So ask yourself, what are you looking at? In your life, what are you around? Are you around lost people? Are you around, as Jesus says, the least of these? The poor, the hurting, the orphan, the widow. Are you around the sick and the forgotten? Are you around people who, who bash the faith? Are you around people who, who have no relationship with Jesus? Who's, who's around your table? Are you seeing the crowds? Because I think when we see the crowds, it, it'll lead us to see the need for laborers. This is where Jesus goes next. Look, this is the second point, the laborers. Look at verse 37. Then he says to his disciples, right? This is right after Jesus is uh, looking at the crowds. It moves into compassion. He feels for them. His gut is wrenching. He turns to his disciples, and this is what he says to his disciples. The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Now, Jesus changes the metaphor from a flock to a field. Right? He goes from talking about sheep to talking about grain and harvest time. And, and, and when Jesus sees the crowds, what he's saying is, uh, I see opportunity. I see harvest. I see possibility. I see an abundance. I see these are people in need and we have the opportunity to help them. And, and here's the contrast, but Jesus sees this abundant harvest and few laborers. In other words, he, he sees a harvest that's, that's abundant, but labor, laborers who are nearly absent. Here's how harvest time would work in, in their culture. You know, if you're owning a farm, you would come to harvest time, and, and eventually it would be that time where you would hire out laborers, right? There was so much work to do that for a season of time, you had to hire out people to help you gather in all the, the harvest. You, you couldn't do it all on your own. And so they would hire these temporary laborers who would come in and help them get all of the harvest because there was a small window. If you didn't get all the harvest in in time, you could possibly lose some or all of your harvest. You could, you could really mess it up. And, and so Jesus is using this metaphor in a farming community who would immediately have known the consequences of having no laborers. They don't get it wrong. What Jesus is saying is there is a work to do for the gospel. And if there are not enough laborers, there will be a consequence. Why? Why, why does the need of the world not match 
the amount of workers. Why? Here's what it is. I, I believe part of the problem is found in the title that he gives. Laborers. No, notice this. Notice this. Jesus doesn't say the harvest is plentiful, but the managers are few. Right? We've got plenty of people who want to tell other people what to do and how to do it, but not ever get involved in doing it. Maybe you have a boss like that. Maybe you've worked under someone's management like that. Everybody wants to have a role in the work where they do nothing and tell other people how to do it. He didn't say the managers are a few. He also didn't say that the owners are few. He didn't say we're, we're looking for investors. He didn't say we're, we're looking for someone who's looking to make a profit off of this and, and looking to, to you know, benefit off of this somewhere. There's plenty of people who are looking to make money off of religious activity. He also didn't say that the consumers are few. Plenty of folks who'd like to show up and just receive. But he says that the laborers are few. You get that? He, he says this title that in their culture, this, the laborers were, were meant to be the, the menial work. These were the, this was the temp agency. This was them saying, we need you for just this block of time. We're, we're going to work hard for this season. I, I need you to come and serve. And it was the kind of work that, that was hard. It was the kind of work that didn't get a lot of press. It was the kind of work that was menial and, and down below. And, and Jesus says, we need laborers. People who... Aren't in it for the glory, aren't in it for the Instagram likes, aren't in it for the selfies, aren't, aren't in it for, for whatever you can get out of it. Jesus says we need laborers. The laborers are few. And here, here's the problem. That requires us to go low. That requires us to go low. See, the lack of laborers, listen to me, the lack of laborers reveals a lack of humble love. That's what Jesus is saying. It reminds me of the story of the Good Samaritan. Maybe you're familiar. It's a very well-known story. Uh, the Good Samaritan is a story of a Jewish man who goes down from Jerusalem, presumably the temple, and, and comes down this road of Jericho, making his way down. And, and as he's going down the road, the, the road was dangerous, right? It was a treacherous 13-mile trek through this winding road, kind of off the cliff. I mean, it's rocky. It's dangerous. There's... there's uh, you know, little spots where people would hide out and, and, and criminals would often come across people and, and jump them. And it was so dangerous, they called it the bloody way. I mean, people would get jumped and people would get hurt and murdered and robbed and all kinds of stuff. Crazy stuff happened on the Jericho Road. And so anybody who's reading the story and knows the context would ask, why in the world would you travel the Jericho Road? There's got to be a different road. Well, there was. And it was safer and it was faster. Only problem was it went through Samaria. And they hated the Samaritans. So the Jewish folks would rather go the long, dangerous way around Samaria than go through Samaria. And so this man is making the treacherous walk through Jericho. And while he's walking, he gets jumped by a band of robbers. And he gets beaten to a pulp. And they steal everything. They steal even the shirt off his back. The Bible says that he, he was left naked on his last breath. I mean, he's harassed and helpless. He, he, he is the craft. 
And then Jesus, as he's telling the story, he says, along comes this Levite and this priest, presumably from the temple that the man just came from. And, and they're walking down the Jericho Road because, of course, they're not going to go through Samaria either. And so they're walking down this dangerous road and they come across the man who was jumped. And the Bible says that it, it emphasizes that they saw him. You catch that? They, they saw him on the side of the road, dying on his last breath. And when they saw him, they weren't moved to compassion. They were moved to go to the other side of the street. And it says they passed by. They walked by on the other side. The Levite did it. The priest did it. Now, before you judge them, right? Before you judge them, listen to their dilemma. Here's the dilemma in the story of the Good Samaritan. The, the, the religious professionals, they, they were trying to keep the law. And, and the law said in the Old Testament that if you were in this, this class of you know, temple workers, you had to keep yourself what they called ceremonially clean, or, or you could lose your job. And so to be ceremonially clean, you had to not touch any dead bodies. And so they come across this man who looks like he's either dead or on his last breath, and, and they see an opportunity to lose their job. Because if they touch the body, they'll get in trouble. But the, the, the tension in the story is they also read in the Old Testament that you're supposed to take care of those who are in need. And so they're put in this dilemma. What do I do? Do I play it safe? Do I make sure that I keep myself clean? Do I go and help the person? What, what do I do with what I see? Right? Is, is, the, is the tension in the story? What, what am I supposed to do? Do I pursue purity or mercy? And they chose self-righteousness over self-denial. In other words, their pride won over their purpose. This is what happens in me. This is what happens in you. This is what happens when we see and we're not moved. There's this, there's this lack of humility, this this pride that always hinders us from our purpose of love. There's always this inherent risk to love, right? Am I going to look good, or am I going to stay safe, or am I going to go low? Am I going to play it safe or give up myself? Right? And, I, and I know that because I hear this because I'm your pastor and I'm your friend, and, and I hear this from people who, who are thinking about serving, wanting to get involved in, in kingdom work, whether that's here or somewhere else or whatever. The constant reflection is this. I don't know if I have what it takes. I don't know if I have the time. I don't know if I have the energy. I don't know if that's me. Right? And what we mean by that, let's be honest, this is an honest place. Let, let's be honest. What we mean by that is it's going to cost more than I'm willing to give. It's going to be a risk I'm not willing to take. That, that's what it means. Because when, whenever we're given the opportunity to love, again, not everything is your job, but if you look all the time, and every time you look and nothing happens, you've got to start asking yourself, what am I doing with what I see? Because it's going to risk you something. It's going to cost you something. There's, there's going to be something, right? If you're asked to lead a small group, it's going to risk maybe you don't know what you're talking about. And, and there's going to be some awkward moments. And there's going to be people that get on your last nerve because they're more needy than you thought they would be. And there's going to be opportunities for you to look foolish. Or maybe if you look into serving with Gospel Link or Parker Street Ministries, and 
and, and you have an opportunity to serve, and, and you get in there and you realize, I have no clue how to love people who are different than me, who didn't grow up like where I grew up, who look different than me, who experience life different than me. And it's going to risk, it's going to cost you something. And you've got to ask yourself, are, are you a laborer or not? Right? Whatever it is, our pride doesn't want to lower ourselves to the title of laborer. Now let me say this. Shame and guilt are terrible motivators. And if you've been in church for a while, there are lots of churches who will shame and guilt you into serving. Right? It, it works right in the temporary. You feel bad because you heard a sermon and they quoted some scriptures and, and you're like, yeah, I'll sign on the dotted line and you sign up for something and you're like, man, that makes me feel so much better. I'm actually doing something. Now I don't feel guilty. But you did it out of guilt. Or you did it out of shame because someone just kept asking you you didn't want to tell them no. And, and you just, you know, that's how it works in the church. People are desperate for help. But what happens is if you want to help out of shame and guilt... About a week in, you're grouchy. About a month in, you're ready to quit, but you don't tell anybody. About six months in, you hate your leader. About two years in, you wonder if you're a Christian. You're like, I, I just, I'm so full of bitterness. <laughs> you, I'm just saying, this is how it works because your motivation is wrong from the beginning. You started serving because you felt bad. Notice, Jesus doesn't feel bad when he sees the need. Jesus is moved with compassion, not shame and guilt. Right? What, what Jesus is motivated by is this humble love. It's humble love. It's, it's saying, yes, I can serve because I'm not better than serving. I'm not a manager. I'm not an owner. I'm not a lord. I'm a laborer. And I believe, you may not believe this, but I believe every single person in this room has been gifted to serve. If you claim the name of Jesus and the Spirit of God lives in you, you have been gifted. You've been graced with the gift of something to serve the body, to serve the greater community, to be a part of what God is doing in his kingdom. This is the way Peter says it in 1 Peter 4. Each of you should use whatever gift you have received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. Did you hear that? He just said, you are gifted. You have some manifestation of the various ways that God puts his grace into his people. And so you may not know what it is. Some of you, you know what it is. You know I'm gifted in this area, and I, I know I've seen God use me in this way. You just haven't been using it. For whatever reason, you, you haven't been serving in the way God has gifted you. Others, man, you, you don't know. You're, you're kind of new to this thing. Let me tell you, the best way to find out is just to get started, to jump into the field and figure out, I'm good with a hammer, or I'm good with a plow, or I'm good with watching and telling people what to do. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, I, I, you have to get in the game and find out. And, and you find out where your passions and where God's calling line up and where you see what you're good at and what you enjoy and, and what God has wired you to do. And you find out this, this is how I can serve the body. I am for this. But you've got to see. It has to move you to something. It, it, has to, it has to begin with this humble love that moves us to labor. 
And so the laborers might be few, but God has put every laborer needed for his kingdom in his church. Everyone. And so I'm praying that God would open our eyes to see that. In fact, that's the last point, is where we turn is to the Lord. All right, the third point is to the Lord. Look at verse 38. Jesus says this after that to the disciples. He says, therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Do you catch that? Jesus' conclusion is powerful, right? He, he doesn't say the thing maybe you thought he would say after the therefore. He doesn't say, you know, the, the harvest is plentiful, the laborers are few, the need is great, therefore raise money. He doesn't say, therefore hire more people. He doesn't say, therefore, go out and create a business plan. Not that any of those things are evil, but they're not first. Jesus says, therefore, pray. And the word he uses to pray is, is stronger than the typical word in the New Testament. He uses a word that, that can be translated beg or plead. Right? It's this image of, of someone coming to the owner of the field and begging and pleading for help because the work is too great. It's coming to God and saying, God, if you don't show up, if you don't send people out, I don't know how this is going to happen. Please send somebody. Please fill up your field. Please send out laborers. You're begging, you're pleading because you know he's the only one who can do it. Right? Notice the titles. Laborers are few. The Lord. There's, there's many laborers, but there's one Lord. There's many people who can get the work done, but there's only one who can send people in to do the work. Only he can get more laborers. Only he can change hearts. Only he can enlist hands in the work. Only he can send people. There's one Lord. Therefore, pray. And amazingly, the disciples become the answer to their prayers. Right? Jesus is saying this to his disciples in chapter 9. Right after in chapter 10, notice what it says. Jesus sends out the disciples. It's like the, the prophet Isaiah in the Old Testament. Isaiah is taking you know, a, a, an overview of, of what's happening in Israel and seeing the needs, seeing the, the oppression, see, seeing the spiritual reality, seeing all the terrible things. He's praying to God and he sees this vision and, and he hears God say, whom shall I send? And Isaiah raises his hand and says, send me. I'll go. Isaiah became the answer. To what he saw, to what he prayed for. Same thing happens to the disciples. Let me tell you, it's a dangerous prayer to pray for laborers. God might just call your name. He might just say, all right, here you go. You need people? Come on. Right? It's this realization that it's the Lord of the harvest who owns the kingdom, who owns the field, therefore pray. It's why prayer is our primary work. Because it's about him, not us. It's about the Lord, not the laborers. There was a, uh, a job posting recently, and I'll close with this. There was a job posting recently by the NASA uh, Space Department, the, the, you know, overseeing kind of everything. And, and they posted this job uh, called the Planetary Protection Officer. It was someone who's, who's responsible for the human footprint as they explore planets to make sure that they kind of take care of the place, make sure they don't ruin anything, whatever. I don't know what they do, but it was some kind of extreme qualification. 
Or you, know, you got a background in mathematics, engineering, biology, chemistry, you name it. You had to be brilliant and well qualified. And apparently the, the position got posted and kind of went viral on the internet. And people started talking about this position. And a nine-year-old named Jack Davis got a, got a hold of this somehow. And this little nine-year-old decided he was going to apply for the job. He decided the job description sounded great to him. He felt qualified. So he pulls out a piece of paper with his parents' names on the letterhead, and, and he writes a personal handwritten letter to NASA, to the director of this program, giving his qualifications for the job. And this is what he says as he makes his case. I want to just read you a few sentences. He says, I may be nine, but I think I would be fit for the job. One of the reasons is my sister says I'm an alien. <laughs> Also, I have seen almost all the space movies and alien movies I can see. And then he goes on to cite his skills in video games and also that he's seen Guardians of the Galaxy. And he concludes with this. He said, I am young, so I can learn to think and speak like an alien. Now, of course, NASA gets a hold of this letter, and, and they, they think it's cute and wonderful, and, and the director decides he's going to respond, and he writes back this handwritten letter to the young man, and he basically says, you know, we've received your letter, we thank you for your application, but we, we need to see uh, you further your studies and your education, and we're always looking for great scientists to work for NASA, and so we look forward to one day working with you. Thank you, you know, for your, your time, or whatever. And what, what it says is, as cute as it was, as wonderful as it is that a little nine-year-old thinks he can be in charge of planetary exploration, he's unqualified. And, and what you see is in the world, right, that's the way the world works, and the nine-year-old just hasn't figured it out yet, but the way the world works is you have to be qualified. You have to have what it takes to be a part of something. In other words, what the world is looking for is someone who's healthy. The world is looking for someone who, who can do the job, who's competent, who's able. And what Jesus is looking for is not someone who's healthy, competent, able, but sick, broken, and failing. What Jesus is looking for is, is not the people who, who have it all together and have an amazing resume and have the right education and have the right experience. Jesus is looking for those who failed miserably, who are overwhelmed, who are needy, who have nothing to offer, but are willing. Amen. Those, listen to this, those who know they are not the Lord, they're laborers. Why? Because the gospel message is not a message of, of help wanted. It's, it's a message of help available. It's a message that says, I am not looking for assistance because I somehow lack what I need to get the work done. Right? God doesn't lack anything. He's saying, I'm looking for people that I can work in and through because I love to work through broken people. I love to work through other sheep who can bring in lost sheep. I love to work through people who, who've been through hell on earth that can help people who've been through hell on earth. I love because this is the gospel. The gospel message is, is a message that says, I have come to you because I've seen, right? The gospel says there's a God in heaven who saw you in your failures, who saw you in your sin, who saw you in your messed up, darkest days, and he saw you and he felt for you. Thank you, Lord. Deep in his gut, God felt for you. He felt for the hurt you've experienced. 
He felt for the pain you've been through. He felt for the worry you've endured. He felt for the foolishness you've made of your life. He felt for the failures in your marriage. He, he felt for all of it. And he said, I'm not just going to feel, but I'm going to be moved to act. And I'm going to come from heaven to earth to come to you. Right? What Jesus says in that verse that I said earlier, he said, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for me. Right? Jesus came to give his life for his enemies. When Jesus comes on the cross, it's God with arms stretched wide on the cross saying, I am here to serve my enemies. To serve until I give every last breath. To serve until I give everything I have for those who hate me. To give everything I have for those who turned against me. Not because you deserved it. Not because you're worthy. Because I love. And I love to serve. I love to serve. See, the enduring motive for mission is the love of God in Christ. That's it. It's not shame. It's not guilt. It's the good news that there's a God who served you so well that he can change your heart to serve. And he has to do it every day. So I want to ask you, are you all in to serve? Are you all in to follow a God like that who would die for you to pay for your sin, to bring you in, to ransom you, to purchase you, to make you his own? That's what, he, that's what he calls all of us into. And to be a part of that is the greatest work you could ever have. To be in the field of God, saying, I'm a laborer who doesn't even deserve to be here. But by the grace of God, he's filled me, he's saved me, he's gifted me. And I'm here, I'm all in. God, whatever you have for me, I'm all in. Wherever you send me, I'm all in. However you want to use me, I'm all in. Because you were all in for me. Let's pray. Father, we come to you as you said. You said the needs are great. It's overwhelming. You were moved to tears as you saw the needs of Jerusalem. It makes me wonder what it's like to watch God cry. What it's like to watch your eyes water over the lost and least of these. And Lord, we ask that you would, by your spirit this morning, move upon our hearts. Not for an emotional experience, not for something that makes us feel good or bad. But that it would move us towards you and towards the people that you love. The people you've called us to and called us to, to be a part of their story that you're writing. Lord, I ask that your spirit uh, continues to encourage us and challenge us, strengthen us. That you would use us however you would see fit. That we would humble ourselves in the love that you've called us to. To see ourselves not as lords or owners or managers or even sidelined workers. But we are laborers in the field, dependent on you. We ask for your grace for the work in Jesus' name.